Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a family practice doctor discusses why so many Central New Yorkers are being diagnosed with sexually transmitted diseases. More young women, uh, when they become sexually active with males, are using oral contraceptives and not thinking about sexually transmitted illness. A surgeon shares burn prevention advice and talks about taking care of patients with burns. You don't want to use an accelerant such as gasoline or even charcoal starter to start a regular wood fire as the fire can become out of hand very quickly. And a urologist who is visiting from Africa explains the efforts he's made to prevent and treat obstetrical fistula. And some of these women, they think that this is a punishment of God to have a fistula. All that plus a selection from The Healing Muse right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's Health Link on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll learn about burn prevention and what it's like to take care of patients with severe burns. Then we'll talk with an African urologist about the efforts he's made to prevent and treat obstetrical fistula in his country. But first, we'll explore the rapidly rising rates of sexually transmitted diseases in Central New York with a family practice doctor. The rate of syphilis, gonorrhea, and chlamydia infections is rising both statewide and nationally. And with me in the HealthLink on Air studio to talk about the reasons is Dr. James Greenwald. He's a professor of family medicine at Upstate, and he says there are many misperceptions regarding STIs or sexually transmitted illnesses. Thank you for being here, Dr. Greenwald. Thank you. Let's start with the first myth. I think many people may think that there's an increase in STIs because there are more people becoming sexually active. Is that the reason? Uh, no, no, it's not. Uh, actually, uh, young people are putting off the date of first intercourse and you know, probably reducing their, their number of partners. So it would seem like a strange thing for this to be happening. It does. And you know, the reason why we're seeing more sexually transmitted illnesses increase in gonorrhea and chlamydia is a, a source of debate. It's a little hard to do uh, research on these things, but it's thought in part uh, bec to be due to the fact that more young women, uh, when they become sexually active with males, are using oral contraceptives and not thinking about sexually transmitted illness. Well, I got all my shots when I was a kid. I really don't need to worry about sexually transmitted illness and gonorrhea, chlamydia, uh, syphilis. There's no shots for those. So they may use birth control to prevent pregnancy right. and not even think about the diseases that they could. Exactly. Hmm. It probably has uh, something to do with um, uh, other other concerns, other practices. Uh, young people are more creative, I think, than, than uh, you know, the old generations were in terms of using different body parts for sexual expression. And uh, uh, oral sex, anal sex, you know, are seen not to be risky uh, and for, you know, but, and they're not risky perhaps for pregnancy, but, but they could be risky for uh, transmitting sexually, illness, sexually transmitted illnesses. So this increase in syphilis, gonorrhea, chlamydia, is this more of a problem for women or men? All the above. Okay. Uh, the, one of the highest levels of the chlamydia infection is in young women, uh, early adult and, and late teenage years. And uh, nearly half of all the 1.7 million cases, uh, you know, in, in the last year that we have numbers for uh, were in that uh, 15 to 24 year old group. So uh, it's, a, it's a problem for women. They're a little less likely to show symptoms early on in the illness with the gonorrhea and chlamydia. And it's only when the disease begins invading, invading the rest of the reproductive tract or causing symptoms elsewhere. Uh, the biggest one being pelvic inflammatory disease where they get a lot of pain, they can get scarring and damage to their tubes and loss of fertility from these conditions. And uh, whereas men, will often but not always have symptoms, uh, especially if they have a, a you know, 
it in their their penis they'll they'll have discharge dripping or burning doesn't always happen with women so the symptoms are probably different for gonorrhea chlamydia and syphilis yes um can we go over what what you would need to look out for well gonorrhea and chlamydia i've mentioned the symptoms in females often are not there early on and the symptoms in males uh, there are other places you can get gonorrhea. You can get gonorrhea in the eyes. You could get gonorrhea in the rectum. You can carry gonorrhea in the, in the oral pharynx. And there are different tests for different body parts. Unfortunately, there, there's no universal you know, testing that's necessarily available in, in common doctor's offices. And, and some of the tests are, are not available at all in some doctor's offices. So it's a little bit of a barrier against diagnosis. Syphilis is, is very different. Uh, probably at least half of the people who get syphilis don't have any symptoms at all early on. It can cause a painless sore on the genitals uh, or wherever the port of entry is. Uh, later on, syphilis can then invade the heart. It can invade the brain. It can, you know, be transmitted to fetuses and in all those cases can cause really very serious uh, and even fatal uh, conditions, so it's it's really important that it get picked up early on. There's something called secondary syphilis, where you get a rash that can last for a little while and uh, uh, causes, uh, but not very specific rash. Little oval things that sometimes have scaly spots on them, and uh, you know I do tests for it all the time when I see funny rashes, and and I, I haven't seen a case of secondary syphilis. So a lot of the cases you just pick up by accident when you do testing, uh, you know whether it's for pregnancy or for some other reason. So some of these, it sounds like they can be serious problems. It's more than a nuisance. Absolutely. These can be very dangerous. Absolutely. Okay, especially, um, I think I read something about pregnant women with syphilis. There's Pregnant women with syphilis, you know, there's a high incidence of passing it on to children. Fortunately, you know, if they do have uh, um, prenatal care, I mean, it's, it's usually picked up. And a lot of times we pick up false positives on the syphilis tests and do some investigations and find out it's not a problem. But it's uh, for women who, who get prenatal care, which is the majority of women, it's, it, it is picked up. But it's a shame when it, you know, isn't prevented before then. Now, um, prevented is one thing. Prevention would be great to prevent getting these. But if you do contract one of these, they're treatable, right? They are. Uh, gonorrhea in particular has begun to develop uh Resistance against some of the common treatments, uh, azithromycin is something that's that's been used, and uh, the rate of resistance to that, especially in in large urban areas, less in Syracuse area, um, are uh, you know showing resistance, and there's been resistance to other common antibiotics also. So, uh, um, you know, we're we're on the lookout for that, uh, and uh, like to do follow up testing on patients uh, and testing on their partners as soon as we can. Now, what about herpes? Well, herpes is uh, common. It's not a reportable illness, and so it's not, uh, we don't have great numbers for the incidence of herpes. Uh, there's type 1 and type 2, and uh, they can be passed on. Either one can be passed on as, a, as an in infection in the genital uh, or perineal area. Uh, they're only dangerous, again, in the, when a pregnant woman has herpes at the time of delivery. Uh, she can pass that on to, her, uh, to the child as the child's being born. Uh, at a, but it's a nuisance at other times. And, uh, you know, it's something that uh, certainly the transmission can be reduced by people who have herpes uh, taking a suppressive medication when they're sexually active uh, and uh, to some extent can be prevented by barriers, but herpes doesn't always, uh, the lesion itself is, is often outside of the you know, genital tract off to one side, and so it can, it can still be passed on. You know, all these things can be passed on if you use a barrier, uh, that, that's a condom or a female condom or a dental dam, which covers over the entire uh, female genitals. All those things uh, are used to prevent all these sexually transmitted illnesses, and they're, they're a big help, but okay. they're not 100%. 
This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. James Greenwald, a professor of family medicine at Upstate, and we're discussing sexually transmitted diseases. We haven't talked about HIV. What are the numbers uh, looking like with um, transmission of HIV? It's wonderful news that the uh, rate of HIV, new HIV infections in the United States is falling. There are probably a number of reasons for that. Uh, we've focused a lot of our public health energy on uh, uh, preventing the spread of HIV uh, and on uh, early detection and treatment of people who are HIV positive, and then on uh, preventive, uh, uh, pre-exposure uh, preventive treatment. It's called PrEP. Uh, that's a, a newer thing, uh, but uh, you can give low doses of HIV medicines on a daily basis, certain ones, and they will prevent people from, reduce the rate of picking up HIV. And so people who are at higher risk, people with multiple sexual partners, people, uh, men who have sex with men uh, in particular, and then people who have a partner who has HIV would should look into the, the PrEP um, situation and uh, see if their you know, doctor recommends it. So that's having an impact, a positive. All those things are having a positive impact on the rate of HIV. The okay. downside of the falling rates of HIV is that uh, uh, men who are having sex with men are seen to be reducing the, the rate of using condoms because, you know, they know, well, their partner's HIV positive, but their viral load is zero, so their, their risk is very low, or perhaps they're using PrEP. You know, we don't know all the reasons, but uh, men have reduced the rate of using condoms and condoms can be used both by the, um, you know, to go over the penis. There's a, a female condom that can be used for rectal intercourse. So the, they, they quite likely reduce the rate by a lot, maybe not 100%, uh, but people are forgetting or just not using them because of uh, uh, the thought that, well, it's less of a worry than it used to be. And so that might account to some, for some of the increase in the other. That's some of the thought, so, especially okay. for the syphilis transmission, which uh, the, the highest rate of transmission of syphilis is uh, men having sex with men. Okay. Well, you're a family practice physician, so you have patients potentially from birth to old age, right? You see Absolutely. men and women of both and uh, all the ages. So when do you have patients that come in thinking they have a sexually transmitted illness, or do you come across something in an exam and then it's a total surprise for them? Uh, a little more often the latter, uh, for whatever reason. Uh, you know, I definitely have patients uh, who are concerned because they have some symptoms. I'll have other patients who have some symptoms and they haven't made the, the connection. And, uh, and then there's just routine screening and people who are sexually active uh, or been sexually active in the last few years uh, you know, I, I encourage them uh, to, to get regular STD testing. It's not difficult to do. We can check for HIV, for gonorrhea and chlamydia without even an internal exam on a urine test. Uh, and that will check a lot of the cases, uh, if not most. Syphilis testing, again, can easily be done as well as other diseases which can be transmitted sexually, such as uh, hepatitis B. There is a vaccine for that that can prevent that. Uh, and uh, uh, hepatitis C, which there is no vaccine for and probably has a sexual transmission. We're not really up on how that gets passed back and forth. So there's lots of things you can test for on a regular basis, and uh, we encourage that in all of our populations where they might be at risk. Now, New York State has listed reducing STIs as one of its um, key health goals for the next five years. Right. What's the plan for doing that? Well, they have four different plans. Um, they want the uh, uh, to increase uh, Department of Health services to people who are newly diagnosed with STIs. And they've done a really good job uh, on that with uh, HIV uh, and uh, with partnering agencies, agencies that partner with the health department. Uh, it's a little harder for them to, to chase down chlamydia and gonorrhea uh, cases. Uh, sometimes uh, people don't want to share who their partners were. Uh, sometimes partners are hard, hard to find out. Um, they have, um, though, one of their other goals called expedited partner therapy is a law that was passed along with the, uh, you know, the help of the American Academy of Family Physicians chapter in New York State, 
to make it possible that you can write a prescription for a partner of somebody. You don't have to put their name on it. Uh, you don't have to do, use the electronic prescribing. You can give it on a written prescription. And the, and the legislature has renewed this, and the Department of Health have renewed this law so that we can treat partners early, especially for chlamydia, but also for gonorrhea. Um, you know, if somebody's been exposed, uh, I have a new you know, diagnosis on a patient, we can give them a prescription for their partner. Obviously, encourage their partner to go get health care, but for various reasons, uh, people don't always follow through with that. So expedited partner therapy and then uh, health department workers following up with people are two of the goals. Uh, the, the other things that they're, they're hoping to do is uh, increase the distribution and use of condoms, through education by healthcare workers and county health departments. And uh, part of that is our, our office uh, is a teaching practice. We've had condoms now, uh, uh, you know, if we offer them to people who we think they might be helpful for and try to do teaching about condoms whenever we possibly can. And then uh, the last thing is encouraging healthcare providers to just ask, ask more often, uh, ask, uh, a more open-ended, a less um, um, judgmental interview uh, about the types of partners, the numbers of partners, the genders of partners, the body parts which are used uh, if uh, the rectum or the throat are used in sex, offering gonorrhea screening in those areas. You can't do the, the urine test uh, for those areas. So we just try to be more open-minded, a little more thorough. And, uh, you know, I'm surprised. Patients uh, are not squeamish about it if they hear about it from a patient they're they're and they're happy you know that that we ask them the questions sometimes they chuckle if uh, they say oh no that's not my issue or whatever but uh, uh but you won't know if you don't ask you don't know if you don't ask and uh uh you know when i see situations that i never used to see before uh you know like a chlamydia infection in a female who's only sexually active with females um, you know, I know that, uh, uh, you know, I need to do a better job at uh, just being open-minded and asking. Okay. Well, thank you so much for the information. Yes. My guest has been Professor of Family Medicine, Dr. James Greenwald. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink On Air. Coming up next the safe way to enjoy a campfire. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Dr. Jessica Summers is an assistant professor of surgery at Upstate and the medical director of the Clark Burns Center at Upstate University Hospital. She's with me today in the HealthLink on Air studio to talk about caring for burn patients. Welcome, Dr. Summers. Thank you. So a big part of caring for burn patients is actually getting the word out to help prevent burn injury in the first place. And we're going to get to that, but let's start with the treatment for a burn caused by flames. Um, what advice do you give for how to help someone who's been burned? Yeah, so um, the first part of, you know, helping after someone's been burned is to actually stop the burning process. The stop, drop, and roll? Stop, drop, and roll. Um, you know, putting water on it. Uh, you know, jumping in water. Um, you know, we recommend the stop, drop, and roll as the, the, the mainstay, but basically doing whatever you can to kind of stop the burning process. So if your clothes are on fire, take the clothes off? Right. We want to okay. stop the fire first and then get all the clothes off. Um, if they come off, sometimes, you know, with some certain fabrics, they'll get stuck and that's okay. Just leave them there. Um, but if you can get them off, get them off is the best. And then you want to basically just cover the area or the patient in, in dry, clean sheets and try to keep them as warm as possible. Um, try to keep as warm as possible, but they've just been burned. Why would you want to keep them warm? Right. So uh, your skin is, uh, you know, the biggest organ in your body, and one of its main functions is regulating body temperature. 
And if a significant portion of it is burned, then your body's no longer able to keep its own temperature. And so your body temperature declines very quickly if you have a large burn. And so keeping them very warm is, is important. Um, that sounds counter. It seems like, you know, if you burn yourself, you would reach for ice. But that's the wrong thing to do, right? Right. Yes. Huh. So um, a small area you can cool with water uh, for a short amount of time, three to five minutes. But really placing ice on any burn uh, leads to an actual cold injury in addition to the thermal injury. So it can worsen the burn injury. Wow. Now, do all burn injuries require emergency attention, or how do you determine whether you need an emergency visit? Yeah, um, well, I would say that, you know, all burns should be cared for by, you know, a physician or a provider, medical provider. So going to an urgent care or emergency room or your primary care physician as soon as possible is um, a good idea, and then he or she can determine whether a higher level of care is, is needed for that particular burn. Okay. Let's say it is severe enough um, that you need to go to the hospital emergency department. What happens when you get there? Yeah, so um, they're obviously going to bring you in. Um, you know, pain medications, we're going to provide pain medications for you because burns are extremely painful. And then we do need to clean the burn and get kind of all of the, the dead tissue off. And then we would, you know, dress the burn. And what we dress the burn in uh, depends on the, the depth of the burn and the extent of the injury. Um, depth and extent, does that get into the first degree, second degree, third degree? Those are all exactly. still... Exactly, okay. yes. Yep. All right. Well, let's talk about some specific types of burn injuries and what people can do to reduce their risk. Because um, in central New York, as we get into warmer weather, people are sort of outdoors more. Yeah. Um, campfires. You know, we're entering a season... Um, of camping. So what, what do you have in terms of um, being safe, advice for being safe? Yeah. So, um, you know, you, with campfires, you specifically want to have a large area that's cleared of any debris or anything else that's flammable. Um, you want to keep a supply of water or a fire extinguisher nearby in case the fire gets out of hand or somebody does get burned. Um, you don't want to use an accelerant, um, to like, such as gasoline or even, um, you know, a, a charcoal starter to start a regular wood fire um, as the fire can become out of hand very quickly, and that's how people get injured. Okay, so just matches or lighter. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then when you're done with your campfire, it's very important to put it out completely. And that involves placing water on it, stirring it, and then putting more water on it until the fire is actually cool. Uh, you don't want to ever bury that fire because people can come by and walk on it afterwards and the embers can still be hot and other people can be inadvertently injured but that way. Is it, uh, I know a lot of people like to, you know, roast hot dogs or uh, marshmallows by the campfire. Can you do that safely? You can do that safely. Um, if you have children, uh, they need to be, you know, watched very closely. Um, you don't want to have any loose fitting clothing that can fall into the flames and then start a fire that way. So making sure that you have, you know, a large enough or long enough kind of stick to roast the things with um, is the best the best way. So being sensible and using care. Yes. So let's move into gasoline. I know gas is responsible for some 500 deaths each year, 3,900 hospitalizations, 6,000 house fires, gasoline, right? Yes. So what do we need to know about handling gasoline safely? So uh, the biggest thing is, you know, store gasoline in kind of a uh, cool, well-ventilated area. Um, you do want to keep uh, it away from sources of fire, such as your stoves or furnaces. Um, the, the, the issue with gasoline is that it's really not the liquid that ignites the, the source of the fire. It's the vapor that can kind of collect in an enclosed space. Oh, I didn't realize that. I yes. thought it would, like if you spilled it or something, but it's the vapor. Mm -hmm. It's huh. the vapor that ignites more quickly than the liquid. And then, of course, the liquid then catches on fire after that. But... Um, you know, the vapor is, is, is extremely dangerous. Um, the one thing about gasoline is that it can ignite at temps even less than, or at negative 45 degrees, um, and that's so it can start our cars in, in Syracuse winters and whatnot, but it can burn at very low temperatures. Um, and that vapor has a, is, um, has a very high density, and so it collects low to the ground. Um, it doesn't disperse into the air. Um, huh. 
Okay. Um, I, some people like to use gasoline for cleaning stuff. Right. Not a good idea. Not a good idea. Not a good idea. Yeah, you don't want to use it as any kind of cleaning solution. Don't want to use it to kill weeds um, or as an insect killer. Um, it's really designed just for the, the fuel that it's designed for, small motors and, and, and gasoline engines. You don't want to use it um, uh, in other things that are designed for other fuels, such as kerosene, either. Let me ask you this, the, the first aid the sort of things that we talked about at the beginning, does that apply to uh, burns from gasoline as well? Is it kind of the same thing? Yeah, if it's a flame burn um, from gasoline, you want to, again, stop the burning process, so stop, stop drop, and roll, um, smother the fire as best you can. Um, if you have gasoline spill on you, you want to rinse it um, extensively for at least 20 to 30 minutes with water. Um, the gasoline can also cause a chemical uh, burn in addition to oh. lighting, you know, getting, you know, lit on fire. Okay. This is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Jessica Summers. She's the medical director of the Clark Burn Center at Upstate University Hospital in Syracuse. This is the burn center that serves all of central New York, right? Yes. Uh, counties yeah. all around. Um, and we're talking about safety. Uh, I wanted to move into propane and gas grill safety. Um, this is, again, the season that, that more people are using those um, gas grills. So what do we need to know to keep ourselves safe with that? Yeah, so uh, the issue with propane is you want to store it, again, in a well-ventilated area away from any sources of flame. Um, check your connections to your gas grill frequently, making sure that they're well-connected and there's no leaking. Um, when you start your grill, you want to make sure the lid is open when you've got, you know, start the gas into the grill before you light it so that some of the vapors can disperse and you don't have a, a big collection that can form a fireball once oh, they light. if you leave it closed, you could yes. start it. Wow. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, you want to kind of make sure that you only turn the valve on your tank, you know, a fourth or a halfway open so that you don't get a big rush of gas when you're lighting it. Um, and then when you're not using it, it's good to keep the valve on the propane tank closed. All right. What if something does happen and you and you do try to light it with the lid still closed and there is like a fireball? I'm imagining it would come back and hit you in the face, probably. Mm -hmm. So that's got to be pretty severe injury to deal with. How do you how do you cope with that? Yeah, I mean, I think if so, um, a lot of times the flash burns are just a flash and it's a big kind of um, engulfing. And if it just kind of gets your, your face, a lot of times it'll burn out very quickly, but then of course it can catch your hair or your clothes on fire. And again, it's the, you know, the stopping the burning process. You want to smother that flame, stop, drop and roll, get a, you know, if someone's around with water, douse with water, blanket to smother, um, the fire somehow to keep it from spreading. Um, and then of course you want to seek medical attention, you know, very quickly, urgent care, emergency room, calling 911. Even if it's just to your face and it's a flash burn, is it going to feel like a sunburn or? Oh, I could feel anything from a sunburn to even worse. Um, you know, people do have extensive injuries from flash burns. Um, they can cause, you know, deeper second degree burns or even third degree burns, um, in some cases. All right. Well, that's, let's segue into charcoal grill safety because um, that's a little bit different than a gas grill, right? Yeah. Um, what do we need to know about using charcoal? Yeah, so you only want to use an approved uh, starter fluid for a charcoal grill. You don't want to put any gasoline or any other kind of accelerant on your charcoal grill. Um, you know, it's good to use a mitt that's approved, you know, for high temperatures when lighting so your hand, you know, your hand doesn't get burned. Um after you've applied that starter fluid, you do want to kind of allow the vapors to evaporate um, for a minute or two before you then go to light the charcoal. Again, you know, it's that vapor that can catch on fire that can then injure you. Okay. Um, always want to keep uh, water handy in case there's an emergency, so a bucket of water or a hose nearby. Um, and then again, you want, if you're, you know, using charcoal, you know, you want to make sure that you put them out completely when you're done. So again, lots of water, stir more water until those coals are, are uh, nice and cool. And again, don't bury them because people can walk on them later and, and injure themselves. How do you tell if they're cool without touching them? Well, I mean, you, so hold your hand over and then, and you know, you can... Just kind of use your judgment if right. there's... Okay, raising. Now let me ask you how you got involved in the care of burn patients. How did you choose to go into this area of medicine? Yeah, so I was um, 
a general surgery resident at uh, Case Western uh, and Metro Health in Cleveland, Ohio. Um, and uh, there's a burn unit there. And so I uh, got some uh, extra special training kind of in that and exposed to it um, throughout my entire residency um, and fell in love with, with burn patients from that standpoint. Um, they can be the sickest patients in the hospital um, and can be quite challenging from a medicine perspective, but also just, you know, kind of taking someone who is, you know, devastated, um, you know, both emotionally and physically, and then taking them through their whole entire care with skin grafting and rehabilitation and, and reconstruction um, to becoming, you know, a normal, normal person again. It seems like in that area of surgery, you form a longer-term relationship with patients than maybe surgeons do in some other areas. Very true, it, yes. And we, just... we continue to follow them, you know, for years because, you know, the, once they're healed, you know, the process doesn't stop. Like, there's a lot of reconstruction that's involved, and, and um, so we continue to follow them for many years afterwards. I didn't realize that. So even after, <clears throat> if I've had a skin graft, um, you still check in on that every mm -hmm. year or so? Yeah, if it's a major injury, unfortunately, there's a lot of contractures that can form um, because even the skin graft is basically a scar that needs to heal. And, and scars, the way that they heal in the human body is that they, they contract, they shrink in. And so that can, you know, cause a lot of functional limitations in people. And so ultimately that needs to be taken care of over, over years. Well, um, if there's children involved with burns and they're still growing and their skin's still, still developing, does that help them heal? Um, well, children do heal some better than, than adults do because they have better regeneration properties, I think. Um, but they're also a special challenge because when they do have an extensive burn wound over a large portion of their body, um, they are growing and scars don't tend to stretch as well as normal skin. And so they, they tend to have a bit more actual reconstruction problems than adults do. Okay. Well, that's good to know. I thank you for coming in and sharing this information with us. My guest has been Dr. Jessica Summers. She's the medical director of the Clark Burn Center at Upstate University Hospital in Syracuse. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a surgeon visiting Syracuse from Africa shares his expertise. State Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Today in the studios of HealthLink on Air, we're honored to have a urologist from Africa who's at Upstate Medical University for a lecture on obstetrical fistula. Dr. Igor Vaz is the founder of Focus Fistula Mozambique, and he's here with Upstate urologist Dr. Dmitry Nikolovsky, who's the director of reconstructive urology. Thank you both for being here. Thank you for having us. Thank you. So, Dr. Vaz, let me make sure my description is accurate. A fistula is a hole between the bladder in the vagina or the rectum in the vagina, and because of the hole, urine and or feces will leak into the vagina. Is that right? That's right. That's right. So that's what you're working to prevent to or repair. Yeah, yeah. So how is this a condition, uh, how is it a hazard to the woman who has a fistula? Yeah. What kind of problems the, does it create? The, the cause of the, the first way is normally the delay on, on the tendons. You know, uh, we normally talk about that and say that this is several delays. The first delay is in, in instruction. The, most of this woman is in the rural area. They don't study. Second delay, they don't reach the hospitals. They don't go for prevention. They don't follow the pregnancy. Third delay, they have no way to go to the hospital to be 
to, to deliver, to make the labor. And then, once reaching in the hospital, they don't have the nice facility to, to, to give the no human resources, no material, no equipment. So this is the, the last delay, one of the last delays. So the complications comes. The birth takes one, two, three days, and instead to take hours. And the compression from the scalp of the baby inside the pelvis, pelvis mother compress all the tissue that begins to die and to drop by the time. And it takes one or two weeks to drop and make a hole inside. Then they drop urine and stools and they break completely the bladder, the cervix, the rectum, the vagina, everything is gone. And then comes the last delay is in treatment because they have no treatment available. We do, and uh, normally now uh, my organization is doing 250, our country is doing 600 cases a year, but we expect to have new, probably 2,000 cases, new cases a, a year in my country. So we're talking about, this is a, a situation where a woman who's pregnant um, your patients, many of them are from rural areas where they don't have access to health care readily available. They can't get to a hospital quickly. They don't know that they need to. And then if they do, get, when they do go into labor, they're not attended to uh, the way they need to be, and they labor longer than they should, and it dis- makes it destroys their internal, sure. right? Is that what you're saying? Sure, yes. So is this a problem, because we're talking about, you're from Mozambique, yes. Africa. Is this a problem just in Africa, or do we see this in other countries uh, over the world? Yeah, you know, firstly, it has been happening in everywhere in the world, even in the United States at the uh, 18th century. Uh, in New York, we, you have a, a center for firstlers that closed because of development. The first law, so obstetric, yes, the obstetric fistula is the result of underdeveloped countries. They have no assistance to the, the labor people. The health uh, uh, facility is very poor, and uh, this is the cause. So if you reach to get better quality of life for the for the people, more education, more facilities, m- better roads, probably will end uh, the fistless. So developing nations, this is more of an issue in. Sure. Um, so, and Dr. Nikolovsky, tell me, um, you invited Dr. Vaz to come to speak at Upstate um, so that your colleagues could hear about what he's doing in Africa. Tell me what you, uh, why, why you brought him here. Well, Dr. Vaz is my mentor and my, my hero. When I was a, a resident, fifth-year resident in, in Michigan, Bowman Hospital in Michigan, we had an opportunity to, uh, to travel with uh, our attendings. Uh, and uh, to Mozambique was one of the countries we could travel. And uh, this is how I met Dr. Vaz on one, on one of this, we, we, you know, they call it mission trip, but in reality, mission was for us because I don't know if we could help Dr. Vaz with anything, but uh, after I met him and uh, saw his, uh, what a humanitarian he is, what a wonderful surgeon he is, basically I was very inspired, and it was my dream since then, it was nine years ago, uh, to, to, to either visit him or, or to, to, to get him to visit wherever I end up. And uh, so finally it took nine years for us to, come, uh, to finally reunite. Um, and uh, all along, the plan was to, to maybe pay it forward. So my, I still have a plan to, to expose my residents to the opportunity that I had to, to maybe travel back and, and kind of restart, reignite this kind of uh, cross-oceanic relationship and, and basically it's it's more for our benefit to learn from him to learn from so a fistula is a complication that could occur and and you probably treat women here that have to have some repair work 
done after a a difficult delivery, right? Uh, no, it's uh, actually that doesn't uh, doesn't really happen uh, doesn't really happen the same way. There is really no uh, comparison between what kind of fistula if, fistula does occur here, but by totally different mechanisms, mm -hmm. and uh, not from a delay in delivery. Okay. And uh, the the type of devastation that uh, we see here, or at least I uh, used to see here, uh, doesn't compare. You know, here we, we s maybe see a fistula that is a couple of millimeters or a centimeter uh, wide, and uh, or sometimes it's also caused by radiation, which is a different story. But uh, w when we are talking about fist obstetric fistula that Dr. Vaz is seeing, it's basically completely destroyed pelvis. Wow totally destroyed all the organs in the pelvis as opposed to just a small fistula that we typically see. Uh, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Igor Vaz. He's a visiting urologist from Mozambique. Uh, he founded an organization that focuses on fistula repair, and that's a complication that can develop in women after childbirth. And we've also got Dr. Dmitry Nikolovsky here. He's the director of reconstructive urology at Upstate. Let's share some of the facts about Mozambique, sort of in comparison to Syracuse. The average birth per woman there in Mozambique is uh, more than five. The physicians per 10,000 people is less than a half percent or something. So it's fewer than one doctor per 30,000 people there. Um, attended births, 50% roughly. Um, Dr. Vaz, tell me if I'm wrong, but, uh, and then the risk for maternal death is very high there as well, right? And the poverty rate is 60-something percent. So it's a very different environment that you're working in, a very different type of patient pool that you're taking care of. So what is your, what does Focus Fistula Mozambique, do, what are you doing through that organization? Yeah. Thank you for that. And, um, uh, let's talk that, um, in, in, in fact, we have very low resource, human resources, and we must improve that, and we must improve the quality of life of our people. But that is very difficult to be done by a local organization. This must be driven by a government. And what we can do is um, to improve the the attendance to the labor and to prevent the fistula uh, in, in the rural areas. Just we train those people that is cured by fistula to be our ambassadors in the rural area to talk about fistulas and to teach people the in the rural area how to prevent it, how to g why they must go to the to the health center to be followed in the labor, and why the labor must be done in the hospital, because they don't believe on that, you know. They have their reasons, but then that the fistula is cured, can be cured. There are many, 80% or 95% of the cases can be cured. And with this surgery, is just by with coming Yes, in. by surgery. And some of these uh, women, they think that this is a punishment of God to have a fistula, and they are rejected from, from the society. They cannot live back to the society. Then, after the surgery, we brought them to society and said, look, this is a completely normal human. He's no punished from God. So this is a surgery that we have done. We just close the hole, and uh, the cause of the fistula is the delay of the, of the, in the labor. So if you do the labor in the hospitals, probably will not catch the, the obstetric fistula. It can be another kind of fistula. So you have to work toward prevention and education. Sure. And then certainly the surgical skill to make the repair. Yeah. But then you've also got a stigma that you've got to kind of take apart. Sure. And also, we work in the local universities to improve the acknowledgement about the fistula. And even then, we found teachers in the universities that doesn't know what is a fistula and how to prevent the fistula. 
and they are very linked to the um, uh, beliefs, uh, traditional beliefs in, in the country. And you know that we have pregnancies at 13 years old, 14 years old uh, childs. And I call this a rape, not a, a pregnancy. And uh, even in then the environment, we can find teachers that say that this is normal in our... Uh, in that culture? Culture. They are prepared to be pregnant. They have some menses, so they are prepared. They make the ritual, and then they become pregnant with a very tiny pelvis bones not prepared to go to 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 carry a, a baby and normally are on schools so this is to change all the this mentality is very difficult but it's possible and we try to do that and uh, after that bring to society those first location that has been uh, operated and can carry on on, on then. And s we try to get also some sponsor to help them to make some small business because many of them are completely alone without parents. Uh, they are pushed out from the society. They don't want to come back to the same society. So we can try to improve them. Give them a way to support themselves. Yes. So yes. let me ask you, after the operation, after you close the hole, um, it is do things work normally after that? Yeah, most of them, you know. There are some cases that is really difficult. <clears throat> some cases that they don't recover the continents, and we need to, to move for very complex operations. There are some cases that is completely obstructed the vagina that we need to do operations, but they turn pretty well. Uh, probably not completely normal, as you say, uh, by by nature, but they can do their lives properly. There are very few cases that stays incontinent. But then we must do a psychological work to bring them to the society, and they do it. Are they able to have children, additional children? No, one of the complications of the, of the delayed labor is a rupture of the uterus. Oh. And some of them, they lose the uterus, so then... Uh, we are waiting for uterus transplants. Well, thank you so much. <coughs> thank you. We appreciate you being here. My, my guest has been Dr. Igor Vaz. He's a urologist who specializes in fistula repair, who's visiting upstate from Mozambique, and upstate urologist Dmitry Nikolovsky, the director of reconstructive urology. Thank you both. Thank you. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Jane Craven is a poet from Raleigh, North Carolina. Her poem, Mission Peak, demonstrates how we can soften absence, at least for a little while, by allowing the images in a day to bring us back to life. Here is Mission Peak. I recall that day as the day I photographed the angels under the boardwalk in Asbury Park. They were tall as a man could reach with a spray can, flowing robes and spiky halos all in red, the only color he had, I guess. The concrete pilings absorbed the paint, which made the angels rusty in spots. It was obvious he meant it, the artist, that he was bent on these angels having a presence so he must have pressed down on his index finger until it hurt in some kind of punk Sistine Chapel moment. I could have been murdered under there, but there was nothing more than tangled bedding pushed under the farthest wedge of the pier where someone woke and left that morning 
for last year. It was fall, bare shore, a few boys casting nets, some tumult in the waves. They began to yell in disbelief at the luck of it, their nets full of thrashing mullet the size of a forearm, stripers ripping through mesh as the boys dug their heels in the sand, trying to haul them in, falling backward, collapsing in laughter. Your husband wrote that you hiked up Mission Peak just before you died. For some reason, I have twinned these recollections of the Jersey Shore with those of you. Brown curls, legs tanned, you making your way up the rocky trail. San Jose radiates in the distance. Here, clouds thin. Pale foam blows down the shoreline. There was an old ballroom on the boardwalk at the foot of the pier. Chandeliers hung with sheets, specks of dust drifted in the sun. The angels held up the floorboards. They could have been ghosts, if not for the wings, ruddy, still of this world. been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, would the DASH diet be good for you? If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes or other podcast sources by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.